Hey, it's Guy here. So imagine being arrested or even tortured just for voicing your beliefs or for being honest about who you are. What would it take for you to say something? What would happen if you did or if you didn't? Well, today's episode is called Speaking Up, and it originally aired in April of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about speaking up. Uh, can, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah. So my name is Esra, and I am from Bahrain. Esra asked us not to use her last name because she's a human rights activist who still lives there. And Bahrain, it's the kind of place where people generally do not speak up. I mean, the culture definitely advocated that, you know, you finish school, you go to university, you get married, you have a job, you build something, you know, people will support you as long as what you build is not controversial. And in a place like Bahrain, speaking up can be dangerous. You know, I hear about my friend who was arrested or someone who was tortured in prison, and I realize this is really not a game. It's a life and death situation. A lot of people get persecuted for their tweets alone. So it is very scary. And exactly what Esra does, she explained that on the TED stage. But before we get into this, I, I should mention that to protect her identity, Esra's TED Talk was not filmed. It's actually not available anywhere online, except for here, right now. So here she is. I was always outspoken throughout my youth, particularly in school. But this was an environment in which you couldn't really be heard. Um, you were encouraged to be invisible and silent so as not to interrupt your daily routine. But being silent wasn't for me. I became increasingly involved in human rights advocacy, not just because it's the obvious thing to do as someone who seeks social justice, but also because I'm queer. This is the part where you clap. <laughs> But you'll understand why I mentioned this. Um, but being queer made me understand uh, and experience the, the trauma of being truly uh, powerless and invisible in our society. I was in denial for a very long time about my sexuality. I was overcome with uh, fear and shame for being queer. And I had to secretly hold on to this burden for the majority of my life because I still live in a society that violently discriminates against us and shames us for who we are. In Bahrain, homosexuality is a punishable offense. Verbal and physical abuse against the LGBT community is normalized by the government and encouraged by religious leaders. But in my early teens, I came across a powerful weapon, the internet. In a place where all media was state-sponsored, where censorship and surveillance was the norm, the internet offered a unique space for dialogue and self-discovery. Even as the government was deploying technology to censor our voices, at least we had a venue to fight back and make our voices heard. And I felt it was imperative for me to be outspoken despite these personal challenges. So I dedicated the last decade of my life using the internet as a crucial tool to advocate for human rights. Who, who in Bahrain knows us about you? I mean, who among you, you know, your family knows that you're queer? I mean, I have no idea. You know, I mean, they, they could find out through this podcast. It's not something I ever talk about at all. And it could be that they know and they decide not to share it with me, that they're aware. Um, and I'm still not very open with it. And in fact, my TED Talk it was the very first time I'm, I'm public with my identity. And I'm still concerned about the consequences involved. It's bad enough that I'm a human rights activist. It's bad enough that I'm doing this, you know, as a woman. Now you add queer to that equation and it's, it's a cause for concern for my safety. And I guess we should mention here, Esra, that you're recording yourself in, in like the privacy of your own um, apartment. Yes. So, I mean, is it important enough for you to be speaking out that you're willing to take that risk? 
I mean, I do think it's important, you know, and, and if I'm going to preach it, I have to live it. It's not often that I, I speak out in such a public way again, but I realized that it was also my responsibility to normalize it. I really didn't want to be a part of the generation that doesn't pave the way to be speaking about something like this comfortably. A lot of the time, the Middle East is seen as just a backwards place where gay people get killed and where we have no aspirations, there's no hope, and there's no optimism. But that's why I'm still here. I mean, I could be just going to Canada and get asylum and just be done with it, right? And live a really open life. But that's not what I want to do. You know, I want to stay here and I want to fight for my people. I want to build a society where it's okay for someone like me to speak up and not have to worry about dying. On the show today, speaking up, ideas about when and why we do it, and stories about different people in different situations who decided that despite the risks, they had no choice. They had to say something. And in Esra's case, how she decided to speak up, it wasn't by shouting out in public or confronting hostile officials in person. Instead, she built a website where LGBT youth across the Middle East could connect online and discuss very personal things like identity and sexuality without the threat of violence or harassment. We've had so many different people that have come across the platform. And because these people are also, you know, um, sharing these questions anonymously, they don't care that other people are going to say, oh, look, so-and-so approached this gay person on Twitter and asked, you know, we don't have that problem. They sign up and they come to us and they say, I'm curious, tell me, what is this LGBT thing? What does the T stand for? Is this a Western plot so that we all stop having babies and eventually we are, you know, completely taken over? You know, <laughs> that's a conversation that we have all the time. And the other thing is we have so many siblings of gay people that come and say, I suspect my brother's gay. How do I tell him I'm okay with it? Or my sister is a lesbian and she has a girlfriend and I'm disgusted by it. And I want to know, should I tell my parents because I think they might harm her? Or how do I, you know, commit to conversion therapy and get her fixed? And so other people start speaking to that person without attacking them and letting them know, look, it's not a question about that. And they start having really deep and meaningful and friendly conversations and I think that's really important to have. It's not just about advocacy. Advocacy is important. But, I mean, a gay pride is not going to change anybody's mind. It's not going to create a discussion. It's really sometimes even considered provocative where people say, you're pushing it, you know, onto our faces. And we, it's not, we, we don't want to see that. And so that kind of provocation, and I have absolutely nothing against gay parades. But I just want to have a different conversation that actually involves the people who are likely to harm us, you know? And I, I want them to know what we're going through. It seems like for you, speaking out isn't about confrontation, but about persuasion. Yes. And it started out being confrontation. And then I saw that it was making very little impact. It works for some societies. Don't get me wrong. I've seen it work in India. I've seen it work in Mexico. It's not necessarily working in the Middle East. There are so many people that are sitting on the fence. And these people are not going to be persuaded necessarily with a deadly protest, for example. Um, it's not just about regime change and let's overthrow the regime and let's do It's not about that. It's something a lot deeper. And there are certain governments that, you know, there's just no reasoning with them at all. But there's still a lot of structural challenges that you can tackle, you know, by taking that, that second approach. At this point in my life, I'm tired of living in the shadows of what my society and even the world expects of me. Korean women in the Arab and Muslim world are not a charity case. We're not just sitting around accepting this abuse against our community. We're taking a stance and highlighting the impact we have in our societies. And we're not just building tools for ourselves, we're building them for all marginalized members of our communities and our countries so that we can all live a life of justice and dignity. And is there a risk? Absolutely. Just by me standing here expressing this, I risk a whole lot of so you better be worth it. <laughs> and um, I used to be so apologetic for being queer, but I'm done with that. I don't owe anyone an apology for who I am, for who I love, and what I believe. 
Free women in the Middle East are building groundbreaking tools against incredible odds in a world where so many people want us to fail while we insist on winning. Being a Korean woman in a society that violently rejects it is empowering, not weakening. It makes us fight harder and louder to make a mark in our worlds, to show everyone else that we're present and we matter. Do you, do you think of yourself as a courageous person? No. Hmm. Wow. Because I'm sure everybody listening to this conversation right now would totally disagree with you. Maybe if they listen to my heartbeat, they'll understand. <laughs> it's, I'm, I get so scared talking about this. I get scared every email I send. I get scared. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I write a tweet and I delete it within five minutes because I run back to my room and I think to myself, I can do that. I'm not filmed, you know, a courageous person would be all over TED.com. My photos are nowhere to be found online if you Google me, even though I've spoken at many different places. If I'm going to speak up, I have to do it on my terms. And my terms was, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be that public figure. You know, doing this and taking a stand and speaking out is hard. It's really hard, especially where you are. Mm -hmm. Are there ever moments where you... You wish you could just curl up in bed and give it all up? Oh, every day. Every single day. So what keeps you doing it? What? Why do you keep doing it? Because of that grave sense of responsibility that I have, that it keeps coming back to me, you know? Living in Bahrain, there's no distraction. The injustices surround you, and you can choose to ignore it, um, but it's going to haunt you. I think every... Decade I get older, I really do believe that you start caring less and less um, about the consequences because you really want to have a meaningful life where you've left an imprint on society, where you made it okay. And for me, um, growing up, I looked up to the people who spoke before me, and there were many of them who died, who were tortured, who were burned alive for speaking up. And these are the people that touched me and gave me the strength to continue. And they, it came at a price to them. Of course it's going to come at a price to me. But I think somehow, even if, you know, a couple of people in the next generation, they're going to think it's okay because there was someone who did it. And so I think if, if you become that person that somebody else can look up to, you've made the right choice in speaking up, regardless of the consequences. Esra lives in Bahrain. She also speaks up for the rights of migrant workers in the Middle East. You can find her website at majal.org. That's M-A-J-A-L dot org. On the show today, ideas about speaking up. And in a moment, what happens when the fate of the world, the entire planet, depends on your voice? Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft. Microsoft wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, is now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Support also comes from NPR sponsor, Walmart. Naba Banerjee leads the product search team for Walmart.com. For Naba, deciphering what a customer actually wants from a few words in a search bar requires some help from machine learning. Humans come in all shapes and sizes. Similarly, their queries come in all shapes and sizes. And so we leverage a combination of machine learning and humans to show the results that are most meaningful to them as fast as possible. To learn more about machine learning and the future of tech at Walmart, visit walmarttoday.com machines. Are rent prices leveling off? What's the best job after college? And is our labor market actually healthy? Listen to Planet Money's daily podcast, The Indicator, to find out. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, speaking up. Ideas about what it takes and when you know it's time to say something. As the ocean gets warmer, that melts the ice shelves that come out from Antarctica and Greenland into the ocean. As those this is climate scientist James Hansen. So if you once get the ocean too warm, there's practically no way to stop it. And the impact of climate change on the planet was why he testified in front of Congress back in 2014. The statement that you just made is blatantly false. How do you we do know. We how, do. how do you explain climate change that occurred 10,000 years ago before man had a carbon print? No, all we, those no one has said it is just, all man-made. Well, there that's, there that's, are that's natural... Kind of the, the, the tack that most however, environmentalists take. the man-made effect is now dominant. This decade is going to be warmer than the last one, and the following one will be still warmer. But here's the thing. This wasn't the first time James was speaking up on Capitol Hill. Because back in the 1980s, he was one of the first scientists to warn Congress and the world, really, about climate change. Actually, my first testimony was after my first major paper on climate, which was published in Science in 1981. And at the time, James was a leading scientist at NASA. And his article in Science Magazine was kind of a big deal. This paper pretty much told the story that you can't burn all the fossil fuels and still keep a planet that looks like the one that civilization developed on. James Hansen picks up the story from the TED stage. In 1981, we published an article in Science Magazine concluding that Earth would likely warm in the 1980s and warming would exceed the noise level of random weather by the end of the century. We also said that the 21st century would see shifting climate zones, creation of drought-prone regions in North America and Asia, erosion of ice sheets, rising sea levels, and opening of the fabled Northwest Passage. That paper led to me testifying to Congress in the 1980s, testimony in which I emphasized that global warming increases both extremes of the Earth's water cycle. Heat waves and droughts, on one hand, directly from the warming, but also because a warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor with its latent energy, rainfall will become more extreme events. There will be stronger storms and greater flooding. All of these impacts have since either happened or are now well underway. Okay, so this might all sound normal now, but that testimony, which was in 1988, was really important because James and a few other scientists did something that was kind of frowned upon in the scientific community. In Congress, they spoke up and they said climate change is real. Altogether, this evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. Yeah, yeah, that's what we said, but it's still, things haven't changed. But, but when you made that testimony, was it, was it risky for you? I mean, were there, were there people who said, you know, like, what are you doing? Uh, the 1988 testimony was risky in the sense of the scientific community was likely to have some backlash about that. Because the scientific community is reticent to uh, speak out until things are so certain that uh, there's no possibility of having something wrong. And there was backlash. Some people said James Hansen was crying wolf. There were even calls to have him fired. And the strange thing was, it wasn't really what he said, but that he said it at all. They said, if there were a secret ballot, we would probably agree that the global warming is there. But we don't like a scientist uh, stepping out and saying that in public. And even though James Hansen was one of the few scientists to speak out on this issue, in the years after his testimony, the body of overwhelming scientific evidence around climate change obviously grew. By 15 years later, evidence of global warming was much stronger. Most of the things mentioned in our 1981 paper were facts. I had the privilege to speak twice 
to the President's climate task force, but energy policies continue to focus on finding more fossil fuels. By then, we had two grandchildren, Sophie and Connor. I decided that I did not want them in the future to say, Opa understood what was happening, but he didn't make it clear. So I decided to give a public talk criticizing the lack of an appropriate energy policy. I gave the talk at the University of Iowa in 2004 and at the 2005 meeting of the American Geophysical Union. This led to calls from the White House to NASA headquarters, and I was told that I could not give any talks or speak with the media without prior explicit approval. After I informed the New York Times about these restrictions, NASA was forced to end the censorship. How did I get dragged deeper and deeper into an attempt to communicate the gravity and the urgency of this situation? More grandchildren helped me along. Jake is a super positive, enthusiastic boy. Here at age two and a half years, he thinks he can protect his two and a half day old little sister. It would be immoral to leave these young people with a climate system spiraling out of control. So now you know what I know that is moving me to sound this alarm. Imagine a giant asteroid on a direct collision course with Earth. That is the equivalent of what we face now. Yet we dither, taking no action to divert the asteroid. If we'd started in 2005, it would have required emission reductions of 3% per year to restore planetary energy balance and stabilize climate this century. If we start next year, it is 6% per year. If we wait 10 years, it is 15% per year. Extremely difficult and expensive, perhaps impossible. But we aren't even starting. Why do you think it's important for scientists to speak out? Because scientists are trained to be objective. And that's the, the critical factor. And, and it's the difficulty I have with both political parties because they're decisions are influenced so much by their politics and other things. So I think the objectivity of science is really needed in issues like this. So, so what are the consequences if, if scientists don't speak up? Well, I think the greatest threat that, uh, that civilization faces because if you wait too long, the system uh, can be out of control. With regard to ice sheets and sea level rise, there's practically no way to stop it. And it's amazing how many of our large cities in the world, more than half, are located on coastlines. The migration that would be forced by large sea level rise from Bangladesh and the Netherlands and Florida. So we really can't let that happen, and that's the big danger that we may lock that in. Hmm. So I did have to speak out. Dr. James Hansen, he retired from NASA after 32 years. He now heads up the Climate Science Awareness and Solutions Program at Columbia University's Earth Institute. You can find his full talk at TED.com. What do you think explains like this force inside of us that you know like that, that sometimes compels us to you know to speak out? Yeah, I mean I think it's something that psychologists call moral conviction. We are as human beings moral beings. We believe in principles. We are driven by values. This is Adam Galinsky. And that is a very compelling and motivating force for people to want to speak up. It's not just that I have a strong attitude or I believe in something, it's that I really feel that it's morally right. And because of that, that's when people will speak up and do the right thing even when they've objectively analyzed the situation and know I'm going to suffer a lot of punishment and backlash for doing so. Adam's a social psychologist at Columbia Business School, and he's kind of an expert on this stuff. I study the dynamics that help determine what are the contexts in which people feel comfortable speaking up. And then second, the how of speaking up to create the least amount of resistance, the minimal amount of punishment. 
Adam says besides moral conviction, there are two other motivating factors that compel us to speak up. When we feel that we have expertise, when we feel that we have some particular insight or knowledge, and when we feel like we have social support and allies. Moral conviction plus expertise plus allies, the combination of those three are really the equation that produces uh, people taking that step forward to speak up. And Adam figured out this equation after interviewing thousands of people on all kinds of issues, big and small. Here's Adam Galinsky on the TED stage. I've asked people all over the world about this dilemma of speaking up, when they can assert themselves, when they can push their interest, when they can express an opinion, when they can make an ambitious ask. And the range of stories are varied and diverse, but they also make up a universal tapestry. Can I correct my boss when they make a mistake? Can I confront my coworker who keeps stepping on my toes? Can I challenge my friends in sensitive joke? Can I tell the person I love the most my deepest insecurities? And through these experiences, we've come to recognize that each of us have something called a range of acceptable behavior. And this range of acceptable behavior is when we stay within our range, we're rewarded, and we step outside that range, we get punished in a variety of ways. We get dismissed or demeaned or even ostracized, or we lose that raise or that promotion or that deal. Have you have you ever been in a situation like that? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Just as one example, I'll give you from way back in 1992. I was a research assistant with a professor at Harvard, and he and his research coordinator were planning their trip to go to London to write a case study of the London Symphony Orchestra. And I jokingly said, when should I buy my ticket? Hmm. Um, and he laughed, and the next day he said, oh, if you want to come to London, you can come. And then that became my first publication that I ever had and really helped my career in a, in a number of different ways. And so, you know... I spoke up and I was rewarded for doing that, but sometimes other people speak up in that exact same situation and they might have been punished. They might have been seen as, who do you think you are, you know, asking for this thing? Yeah. And sometimes um, I have misread situations and I've spoken up and you can immediately see that that was the wrong thing to do um, by everyone's expression and reaction in the room. And Adam says that's what makes speaking up so difficult, because your range of acceptable behavior isn't fixed. It changes based on the context of each situation. And there's one thing that determines that range more than anything else, and that's your power. When we have lots of power, our range is very wide. We have a lot of leeway in how to behave. But when we lack power, our range narrows. We have very little leeway. And the problem is, is that when our range narrows, that produces something called the low-power double-bind. And the low-power double-bind happens when, if we don't speak up, we go unnoticed. But if we do speak up, we get punished. Now, many of you have heard the phrase, the double-bind, and connected it with one thing, and that's gender. Women who don't speak up go unnoticed, and women who do speak up get punished. Oftentimes, we see a difference between a man and a woman or men and women, and we think biological cause. There's something fundamentally different about the sexes. But in study after study, I found that a better explanation for many sex differences is really power. What my research has shown over the last two decades is, is that it's not really a gender double-bind, it's really a low-power double-bind. And what looks like a gender difference are really often just power differences in disguise. And this isn't just true for women. It's true for minorities. In fact, there is an old phrase for, you know, an African-American who would speak up being uppity, right? That represents this double bind. Lower social class people aren't allowed to be uh, speak up without getting punished. Um, low power people in organizations. And so that happens in any situation um, in society when a group or an individual doesn't have as much power. They have a narrower range of acceptable behavior. They have little leeway in how they can behave. When I have power, I have a wide range of acceptable behavior. I have a lot of leeway. And so part of what I do in my research is help people with low power. How do you expand that range and give yourself a little bit more leeway? Yeah, how, how do you do it? 
So in one of the great examples of overcoming the gender double bind is that women don't get punished in negotiations and they feel more comfortable negotiating fiercely when they're negotiating on behalf of another person. This is called the mama bear effect, right? Psychological distance matters a tremendous amount. We always get constrained by our own fears and anxieties and perspective, and we need help from other people to see the larger picture. And so speaking up on behalf of others both makes me feel more comfortable because I have a little psychological distance, but I'm also less likely to get punished because people don't see me as self-interested, but they see me as actually being you know, pro-social and other-oriented. And so I think this really solves both problems, my psychological level of confidence and anxiety and other people's tendency to accept my behavior versus punishment and backlash. And Adam says another way to expand your range is to show you understand the needs of the people you're trying to convince. And that tactic has been effective from asking for raises to asking for equality. Now, when we think about Martin Luther King, he had an incredible capacity to take the perspective of other people. And so I think when you look and you see some comparisons to him and some of the other voices from the 1960s that were um, a little bit more forceful than him, he understood that to get people on board, he needed to use a language of morality and justice, and he needed to do it in a way that was uh, least threatening to um, the power structures that be. And so the nonviolent protest is sort of part of that. But, you know, just take his famous quote, right, which is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's telling people that we're going to get to a just place in the world, but it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, and we have to work together to do that. Um, and so I think he understood for me to have an influence, for me to have an impact, I have to get outside the defense mechanisms of other people who are going to see any expression of equality as a threat. Okay, so Martin Luther King Jr., clearly an exceptional case. But when it comes to you and me trying to do this in our everyday lives, there's a small problem. Perspective taking is hard to do. So let's do a little experiment. I want you all to hold your your finger, put it up, and I want you to draw a capital letter E on your forehead as quickly as possible. Okay, it turns out that we can draw this E in one of two ways, and this was originally designed as a test of perspective taking. I'm going to show you two pictures, and you can see over here, that's the correct E. I drew the E so it looks like an E to another person. That's the perspective taking E because it looks like an E from someone else's vantage point. But this E over here is the self-focused E, and we often get self-focused. In just a moment, Adam Galinsky explains why it's important to not be self-focused when speaking up and why that can actually save your life. Today on the show, ideas about speaking up. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to American Express. American Express believes sharing experiences and ideas help businesses thrive. They want to help keep your business humming by offering you flexible funding solutions such as business loans. Eligible card members can get business loans up to $50,000 decided in as little as 60 seconds. And that could keep you moving at the speed of business. The powerful backing of American Express. Don't do business without it. Terms apply. For details, visit AmericanExpress.com slash business. Thanks also to Sotheby's Institute of Art. Sotheby's Institute of Art offers educational programs including fully accredited master's degrees, online courses, and summer courses for adults and teenagers. Learn about the business side of art, art history, how galleries and auction houses work, and how to begin your career in the art world in New York, London, and Los Angeles. Learn more at Sotheby'sInstitute.com. What has epic battles, biting wit, and holiday cheer? Maybe Thanksgiving, but also our pop culture happy hour celebration of the action classic Die Hard. Whether you're traveling or relaxing on the couch, it's a perfect welcome to the party, pal. Hear the conversation now on Pop Culture Happy Hour. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, stories and ideas about speaking up. And for social psychologist Adam Galinsky, who we were just hearing from, the decision of when and how to speak up is all about context, even in a crisis. Here's Adam on the TED stage. I want to tell you about a particular crisis. A man walks into a bank in Watsonville, California, and he says, give me $2,000 or I'm blowing the whole bank up with a bomb. Now, the bank manager didn't give him the money. She took a step back. She took his perspective, and she noticed something really important. He asked for a specific amount of money. So she said, why did you ask for $2,000? And he said, my friend's going to be evicted unless I get him $2,000 immediately. And she said, oh, you don't want to rob the bank. You want to take out a loan. Why don't you come back to my office and we can have you fill out the paperwork? (laughs) Now, her quick perspective-taking diffused a volatile situation. Wow. I mean, in one sense, this woman was, was able to think quickly in a crisis, but in another sense, I mean, she must have had a lot of courage to, to even speak up. Yes. Um, speaking up effectively doesn't necessarily require courage because if you've analyzed the situation correctly and taken steps to present the information in a way that's most digestible to other people, you've lowered the risk of speaking up, which means courage is a less important ingredient than that. What we think of as courage is when I've analyzed the situation, I know there's cost for speaking up, and I'm willing to do so anyway. That's what courage is. And so courage is certainly a part of this. What I try to do is I try to get people to the point where they don't need as much courage because they've understood the situation and they've been able to um, speak up with the least resistance possible. And it seems like a, a lot of it has to do with just finding the right balance, right? It's exactly right. You know, finding the right balance between, you know, speaking up successfully and getting punished or not speaking up. When we lack power, there's a burden that's placed on us. Mm. And we can fight against that burden defiantly, and sometimes that's the appropriate thing to do. But we can also fight against that burden by finding, you know, which path down the stream to go so we don't crash into the rocks. We still get down the stream. It's just we have to be a little bit more careful about making sure we get into the middle of that rapid. And so finding those ways to signal less contestation Um, is a powerful way to get what you want without creating resistance and punishment. Adam Galinsky, he teaches at Columbia Business School. He's also the co-author of Friend and Foe, when to cooperate, when to compete, and how to succeed at both. You can watch his talk at TED.com. On the show today, speaking up. We're talking about when people choose to speak up and what happens if they don't. So when Clint Smith was a high school teacher, he wanted his students to understand the importance of speaking up and the dangers of staying quiet. Clint tells that story from the TED stage. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a 1968 speech where he reflects upon the civil rights movement, states, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. As a teacher, I've internalized this message. Every day all around us, we see the consequences of silence manifest themselves in the form of discrimination, violence, genocide, and war. In the classroom, I challenge my students to explore the silences in their own lives through poetry. I have four core principles posted on the board that sits in the front of my class, which every student signs at the beginning of the year. Read critically, write consciously, speak clearly, Tell your truth. I find myself thinking a lot about that last point. Tell your truth. And I realized that if I was going to ask my students to speak up, I was going to have to tell my truth and be honest with them about the times where I failed to do so. So I tell them that growing up as a kid in a Catholic family in New Orleans, during Lent, I was always taught that the most meaningful thing one could do was to give something up. Sacrifice something you typically indulge in to prove to God you understand his sanctity. I've given up soda, McDonald's, French fries, French kisses, and everything in between. But one year, I gave up speaking. Figured the most valuable thing I could sacrifice 
was my own voice, but it was like I hadn't realized that I had given that up a long time ago. I had spent so much of my life telling people the things they wanted to hear instead of the things they needed to, told myself I wasn't meant to be anyone's conscience because I still had to figure out being my own, so sometimes I just wouldn't say anything. Appeasing ignorance with my silence, unaware that validation doesn't need words to endorse its existence. When Christian was beat up for being gay, I put my hands in my pocket and walked with my head down as if I didn't even notice. Couldn't use my locker for weeks because the bolt on the lock reminded me of the one I had put on my lips when the homeless man on the corner looked at me with eyes up, merely searching for an affirmation that he was worth seeing. I was more concerned with touching the screen of my apple than actually feeding him one. When the woman at the fundraising gala said, I'm so proud of you, it must be so hard teaching those poor, unintelligent kids. I bit my lip because apparently we needed her money more than my students needed their dignity. We spend so much time listening to the things people are saying that we rarely pay attention to the things they don't. Silence is the residue of fear. I will not let silence wrap itself around my indecision. I will tell Christian that he is a lion, a sanctuary of bravery and brilliance. I will ask that homeless man what his name is and how his day was, because sometimes all people want to be is human. I will tell that woman that my students can talk about transcendentalism like their last name was Thoreau. And just because you watch one episode of The Wire doesn't mean you know anything about my kids. So this year, instead of giving something up, I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue, a stage on the underside of my inhibition. Because who has to have a soapbox when all you've ever needed is your voice? Thank you. Clint Smith is a writer, teacher, and doctoral candidate at Harvard University. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Have you ever experienced um, hatred or, or, I mean, have you ever, I don't know, has anybody ever said something to you because of who you are, because of your faith, and that has just been so incredibly hurtful? Yes, <laughs> all the time. This is Dahlia Mogahed. Um, it happens physically in the, in the in the well in the virtual world. It happens every single day. But there's also been the the physical world where I mean a recent incident in a coffee shop where a man just started spewing the most unbelievable. Um, I mean I can't repeat what he was saying. Just in the middle of a coffee shop, he just just started. To Absolutely, I didn't even know he was talking to me. And then he was looking right at me, and so I was like <laughs> confused. And I looked at him, and I'm like. Sir, excuse me, are you talking to me? <laughs> and he said, Yes, I'm effing talking to you, you effing XYZ. Um, wow. This is my country, and I'll say what I want. I'm going to say the truth. Dahlia is Muslim, and she wears a hijab, and something that she's done since she was 17. And that's still what I wear today. I, I cover my hair and my body. It is about speaking up, being open, coming out as a Muslim, and having pride in that identity, and not being afraid for people to know who you are. Today, Dahlia is the director of research at the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding. It's a think tank that focuses on the American Muslim community. So now, speaking out, it's actually part of her job to educate and form and to help others find the voice to stand up for themselves. Here's Dahlia Mogahed on the TED stage. What do you think when you look at me? A woman of faith? An expert? Maybe even a sister? Or oppressed? Brainwashed? A terrorist? Or just an airport security line delay? That, that one's actually true. If some of your perceptions were negative, I don't really blame you. That's just how the media has been portraying people who look like me. One study found that 80% of news coverage about Islam and Muslims is negative. And studies show that Americans say that most don't know a Muslim. I guess people don't talk to their Uber drivers. <laughs> well, for those of you who've never met a Muslim, it's great to meet you. I wonder, I mean, you obviously, you know, you are, 
you've spoken on stages and you've talked about discrimination and about Islamophobia. And um, when did you decide that you had to speak out? When did you decide that I can't just be silent? I, I've got to do something. You know, I I was um, very active in this area in college and I kind of went into hibernation. I graduated. I started a job in, in a big corporation. I got married, had my first baby, and was just living a really quiet, private life. And then that horrific morning of 2001, mm. where we were attacked as a country and uh, really as a faith community. And that morning, I think everything changed. I remember the first Friday after 9-11, I had to decide whether or not to go to the mosque. And at the time, there were actually a lot of threats against Muslims. And I remember the decision that me and my family made at the time was one of putting faith over fear. We were not going to allow these terrorists to tell us how we were going to be an American. And so we nervously but still went to the mosque that Friday and what we found wasn't an angry protest or violence. We found half the congregation were people of other faiths hmm. that came to stand in solidarity. And really that act of courage and compassion on the part of all of these neighbors inspired me so much. And from that moment on, I felt that I had to dedicate my life to building bridges and bringing about better understanding. When you speak out and you talk about unfair perceptions and misconceptions of Muslims in the media and misunderstanding of what Islam is all about, do you think that perceptions are changing? Do you think that when you speak out, it's going to change minds? I absolutely know it's going to change minds hmm. um, because it does change minds. And, and I've had an outpour of people who've written me and said that their minds were changed. Every single letter brings tears to my eyes. Um, people who say, I used to be Islamophobic, now I'm not. Hmm. Literally people telling me that. So education can really change minds. And, and so I come at this from a very specific perspective. And when I speak to people, it is from a place of generosity. It is not from a place of need. I want to give them something. And when you approach people from that place of generosity, they respond very differently than when you approach them from a place of need or a place of antagonism. I, I do think with every fiber in my body that Islamophobia is a threat to every American. And it is, yes, something that will hurt Muslims first, but it is, is symptomatic of, of a wider problem. It is a rise in fear. Fear kills freedom. When people are afraid, they are more likely to accept authoritarianism, conformity, and prejudice. When you look at when anti-Muslim sentiment spiked between 2001 and 2013, it happened three times, but it wasn't around terrorist attacks. It was in the run-up to the Iraq war and during two election cycles. So Islamophobia isn't just the natural response to Muslim terrorism, as I would have expected. It can actually be a tool of public manipulation eroding the very foundation of a free society, which is rational and well-informed citizens. Muslims are like canaries in the coal mine. We might be the first to feel it, but the toxic air of fear is harming us all. How would you characterize the climate in America today for Muslim Americans? I've never seen it worse, and I've never seen it better. <laughs> I've never seen it worse in terms of what's okay to say, uh, the kinds of policy proposals that are okay to discuss. But at the same time, I've never seen it better. I've never seen so much awareness of the problem of Islamophobia because it didn't emerge last year. It didn't start with Trump. It is only now that people have stopped denying it exists and what is so heartening to me is that if you look at American history, we've had lots of problems. 
And at first we deny they exist. And they persist and they persist and they get worse. And then finally we recognize their existence. Things like racism, sexism. And then we, we work on them. At least we have a process for that. And I think we will all come out the other side, perhaps exhausted, but I think a better people, a better country after this is all over. Doing what you do is like takes a lot of emotional energy, right? Because you get attacked and you put yourself out there. And I mean, your life would be infinitely less complex if you just kept quiet, right? If you didn't say anything, if you just kept your head down and went through life without speaking out. It would be infinitely, yes, less complicated. But I would also cease to be myself. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know who I was if I lived that kind of a life. I feel this is what I'm called to. Bearing witness to justice is what my faith demands of me. And it is, it is what I hope to have the privilege to do for the rest of my life. Dahlia Mogahed, she's the director of research at the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Words that feel, words that sympathize, words that heal and understand. Say them now, let them materialize. Say the words throughout the land. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Speaking Up This Week. If you want to find out more about who's on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Janae West, Rund Abdel Fattah, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Thomas Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us. That's TEDRadioHour at npr.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. We never do. We look for love. We find it in the eyes. The eyes of me and the eyes of you.